Second Corinthians chapter eight, beginning in verse 16, we read. But thanks be to God who puts the same earnest care for you into the heart of Titus, for he not only accepted the exhortation, but being more diligent, he went to you of his own accord. And we have sent with him the brother whose praise is in the gospel throughout all the churches. And not only that, but who was also chosen by the churches to travel with us with this gift, which is administered by us to the glory of the Lord himself and to show your ready mind, avoiding this, that anyone should blame us in this lavish gift, which is administered by us, providing honorable things, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. And we have sent with them our brother, whom we have often proved diligent in many things, but now much more diligent because of the great confidence which we have in you. If anyone inquires about Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker concerning you. Or if our brethren are inquired about, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. Therefore, show to them and before the churches the proof of your love and of our boasting on your behalf. Remember, in chapter eight, Paul writes about the issues of giving and financial accountability. In the opening verses of chapter eight, he gave godly illustrations of generosity. The Macedonians in verses one through five. The Lord Jesus as the perfect example of generosity in verse 9. Paul continues with instructions. Give knowingly in verses 6 through 8. Give willingly in verses 10 through 11. Give realistically in verse 12. Give confidently in verses 13 through 15. And now Paul reminds them that he's going to send three men. In verses 16, 17, 18, and 19, one is named Titus, who we're familiar with. Two are unnamed. Paul will lay down some principles for financial accountability in verses 20 through 24. Remember what had happened. There was a pressing need that had been identified. During this time, the saints in Jerusalem were experiencing Hardship. As you can imagine, being a Christian was very, very difficult. It wasn't unusual for you to lose your job. It wasn't unusual for you to lose your livelihood. It wasn't unusual to experience persecution, isolation, and there was tremendous trial. The saints were suffering in Jerusalem and they were in dire need of financial support. So Paul wants to make sure. That as he collects the money to minister to them, that there's no mismanagement or misappropriation. In other words, the people who handle the money have to be trustworthy and they must be above reproach. So Paul has asked the Corinthians for financial help for the saints in Jerusalem. And now Paul will take steps, measures, if you will, to make sure that their generous, sacrificial giving was protected. And so, we might break down this passage in three broad ways. 
Number one, issues of giving and using in verses 16 through 20. Second, giving and procuring in verses 21 through 23. And then finally, giving and loving in verse 24. So look again. I want to draw your attention to verse 16 where it says, But thanks be to God who puts the same earnest care for you into the heart of Titus. Paul begins this section by reminding them that in Titus, Paul has found a like-minded companion. Titus cares about the things that Paul cares about. Isn't that great when you find someone who cares about the things that you care about? Who loves the things that you love? You love the Lord. You love the Bible. You love the worship of the saints. You love the opportunity to be generous and... (laughs) supportive of people in need. Paul cared about the Corinthians. He also cared about the suffering saints in Jerusalem. And Paul and Titus cared about exactly those same things. And then in verse 17, it says, For he not only accepted the exhortation, but being more diligent, he went to you of his own accord. Paul wanted Titus to take this letter to the Corinthians. By the way, when you look at that word exhortation, you might think it's a word of encouragement. But I think in this context, it's actually the letter that you're reading. It's the instructions that have been given earlier. And then it's the instructions that are given now. There are three basic ways that the word exhortation is used in the New Testament. It's the Greek word that you're going to be very familiar with. Paraklesis. As a matter of fact, remember the word parakletos is a word, a title of the Holy Spirit. It's a word that was translated to come alongside and help. And so in the New Testament, paraklesis is used as an exhortation, number one, an appeal, number two, and comfort, number three. So in, depending on the context, it can mean an exhortation, an appeal or comfort. And here it seems to fit the idea of an appeal. What appeal? Remember what's happened. Paul has defended his ministry. Paul has discovered that the Corinthians have come to a place in their life where they recognize, realize that Paul has a legitimate ministry. Revival has broken out in Corinth. And as revival has broken out, so has the opportunity to be generous to those who are in need. So here, when it says, for he not only accepted the exhortation, but being more diligent, he went to you of his own accord. That expression, he went to you, when we read it, it seems to take place in the past. But I'm going to suggest to you that we know that given the context and the verses that follow, Paul is writing about the reality that he's going. In other words, Titus is going to take this exhortation, this letter to them. To the saints in Corinth with the love, the instructions, the ministry. And again, for those of you who have just joined me, it's all of the stuff that has happened in chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, chapter four, chapter five, chapter six and chapter seven. And again, for those of you who have been following along, 
doesn't it make sense to study the Bible the way the Bible's written? Verse by verse and chapter by chapter and book by book because you can understand the context. If you're just joining me for the first time and you're thinking, he's preaching out of 2 Corinthians chapter 8 because he wants to talk about giving. I knew that this church was just like every other church. They're trying to figure out a way to pick my pocket. How many of you can testify that it's just what came next? Many of you can testify that it's just what came next. And so in verse 18 it says, and we have sent with him the brother whose praise is in the gospel throughout all the churches. Now Paul writes of two more brothers who will accompany Titus on the mission. The first guy is described in verses 18 through 21. The second guy is described in verse 22. Both are unnamed. Both are called brothers. Now, again, we know that this doesn't mean literal brothers. This isn't um, like in Spanish, carnal or hermanos. This is not like flesh and blood brothers. These are spiritual brothers. Why is that important? Because these are true believers in Jesus Christ. Why is that important? Because true believers in Jesus Christ who have fellowship in the gospel, you begin to understand something. These, these are men who love what you love, who love the Lord like you love the Lord. And so it's pretty important that when you entrust positions of leadership and stewardship that it are, that it are, Sorry about that. Usually I'm not that bad in the English language. It's usually. Now I've lost my train of thought. Here we go. It's important when people are in leadership and have stewardship over money. That they be spiritually minded men and women who love the Lord and who have demonstrated a true gift and who love the Lord and who know the Lord for the gospel's sake. Now, again, scholars who read this book love to speculate. Who are these two guys? Is it Luke? Is it Silas? Is it Trophimus? Well, we're not told. And we can speculate till we're blue in the face That's not the point of this particular passage. Apparently, I'm going to suggest to you that the absence of the the name might be quite intentional by the Holy Spirit. Why? Because true discipleship and true service often comes in obscurity. Let me give you examples. The Bible is full of unnamed men and women who participate in the furtherance of God's plans and purposes. We're not told the name of the young girl who spoke of a prophet in Israel to a general named Naaman. And here is this young Hebrew slave and a, and a wise, powerful, um, impacting general of the Syrian army. He has one problem, though. He is a leper. And this young unnamed woman says there's a prophet in Israel who apparently hears from God. And if you go to him and if you speak to him, he might have the solution to your problems. Now, again, a very famous general who goes to a rather obscure place in order to get help doesn't always make sense. But here's the point. 
this young, no-name young girl sends a man on a quest for healing and restoration. And of course he's healed and restored. We're not told the name of the young man who is willing to share his small lunch when Remember, the disciples came to Jesus and said, there's all of these multitudes and we have no way of providing for them. Except this kid has brought forth his lunch, but it's really not a whole lot. Just a couple of fish and some loaves. We don't even know who he is. But we know that a little becomes a lot in the master's hand. People may not know who you are. They may not know your name. They may not be able to recognize you on the street. But God knows who you are. God knows your name. God knows the gifts and the callings that he's placed in your life. I think that that's one of the important parts of this particular passage. The unnamed person was appointed by the churches to make a journey. Look what it says in verse 19. And not only that, but who was also chosen by the churches to travel with us with this gift, which is administered by us to the glory of the Lord himself and to show you your ready mind. The unnamed person was appointed by the churches to make the journey administered by us to the glory of the Lord. This is interesting. The man was appointed. This is one of those really fun Greek words. It's the Greek word Cairo, toneo. If any of you have ever gone to a Cairo practor, you know that word Cairo. The, what a chiropractor does is manipulate your body and your spine with his hands. So the word Cairo is hand. And the word toneo, and by the way, it's only here in the Greek New Testament. It, it, in the ancient world, it meant to stretch out your hand. So toneo is stretch. Cairo is hand. It meant to stretch out your hand. In the ancient world of the Greek people, when they would vote, they would stretch out their hand. We kind of do that when we, when we say, all in favor say, I. We stretch out our hand. That's where it comes from. It came to mean a point in an election. So the idea is that this particular person was elected by his or her contemporaries to give the free will contribution. But I'm going to make some suggestions to you. The Bible says whoever this person is, they have a proven ministry. They have a love for the Lord. And I'm going to suggest to you, too, that if it's a pretty generous offering, who do you want to ride shotgun if you've got a whole boatload of money? I want law enforcement people. I want people who carry a gun. I want people who know what it's like to be robbed and discourage people from robbing. I'm going to imagine that whoever this person is, he's sort of like the ancient version of Matt Dillon in Gunsmoke. A big guy with a big hat and a big gun. Now, he says this is done for the glory of God. But it's also done for the demonstration of the Christians who are willing to care for one another. And this becomes part of the point of the passage. 
that generosity and sacrificial giving glorifies God, but it also meets the need. And look what it says. And to show your ready mind, prothymia. Prothymia is translated five different ways in the King James Bible. It's found four times in this chapter. In, in verse 11, readiness. In verse 12, a willing mind. In verse 19, a ready mind. In chapter 9, verse 2, forwardness of mind. The noun meant eager, willing, ready. So it means to show your ready mind. It seems to incorporate two different attitudes. Excitement and willingness. Now remember why this is an important part of the giving. These aren't people who are manipulated into giving because they have to. These are people who give because they want to. We have an expression in our culture. When you report for duty, you say, ready, eager, willing. Of course, maybe you lived in a world where you never said that. But this is part of the point. They were ready. Eager, willing, verse 20, avoiding this, that anyone should blame us in this lavish gift, which is administered by us. Quick point. The identity of these people don't seem to be nearly as important as the accountability that Paul is trying to communicate. Avoiding this. That anyone should blame us in the lavish gift which is administered by us. The apostle states the obvious. He's basically saying the wise man refuses to handle the money alone. Paul's recognizing something. Guess what? Your gracious giving, your generous and sacrificial giving deserves attention. And so the the apostle stating the obvious, the wise person refuses to handle the money alone. You know, when we were kids and we were starting off in ministry because we didn't go to seminary and we didn't really go to church. I mean, we got saved as teenagers. We we didn't really grow up in a church. I'm talking about Skip Heitzig and I. We we were just sort of on our own as we were. We began to think about, well, how do you have church and what should church be like? And when we when we planted the church in Albuquerque, New Mexico, we had we had agape boxes like we have here. We had little wooden boxes. And when we were starting off in ministry, basically, I would collect the money and I would count the money and then we would account for the money and Skip would write the checks. And I read this particular passage and I said, Skip, we we can't do this anymore. And Skip looked at me and he goes, I trust you. And I said, I trust me, too. The issue isn't whether or not you trust me or even that I trust myself. We need to have a mechanism that is above reproach so that anyone looking at us, following us or asking us, what do you do? How do you deal with the finances in your church? We have to be above reproach. And so here's what we have to do. We have to assign godly men and women to collect the money. And then we have to have another person account for and receipt the money. The person who collects the money and the person who accounts for the money and the person who spends the money, they have to be different people. And they have to be accountable to one another, just like you have to be accountable to the board so that the collection of the money and the receipt of the money and the spending of the money can always be in an open and a transparent way. 
He goes, okay. And we did that. And the person who was in charge of accounting and receiving the money stole $50,000 from us. Now, now, but here's part of what I'm trying to tell you. Is it possible that you do everything right and bad things can still happen? Yeah, the answer is yes. But do you make a conscientious effort to say, look, so far as it's within my power, I want to have transparency and accountability when it comes to money because it matters. And by the way, if you're wondering why, it's because Paul knows the sacrifice and commitment made by the saints in order to help matters. Let me be blunt. Accountability avoids misunderstanding. I'm going to repeat that. Accountability avoids misunderstanding. And so... Paul is in effect saying, look, we want to live our life in such a way that no one can blame us. Paul wants to avoid the charge of financial mismanagement. He wants to avoid the charge of inefficiency. He wants to avoid the charge of dishonesty. And I so understand. Because as the pastor of this church, it's really important that you have the same level of trust and commitment. And so that's why the people who collect the money and the people who account for the money and the people who spend the money and then the accountability for those people who spend the money, that there is a hierarchy of accountability that takes place at every level. And by the way, if you ever want to know, there's only one thing that you have to do. Call the business manager and say, I go here. I give here, I serve here, and I want to look at the books. And you know what she's been instructed to do? Show you whatever you want to see. How important is that? I think it's pretty important, don't you? It's important that you understand that there really is accountability. Again, I want you to think about this just for a moment. Paul is honest and upright. True or false? He is, it's true. He is upright and honest. Has he been called by Jesus? Yes. He is honest and upright and called by Jesus. Yet even he knows that his honest and upright ministry was not always above suspicion and slander. I would like to think that I'm honest and upright and I am a sensitive servant To the Lord's money. But guess what? I'm not above suspicion and slander. And that's why ever since our church's inception. Now remember, our church started with me and my wife and three kids. And then two people came to a Bible study. And then five people came to the Bible study. And then ten people came to the Bible study. Did I collect the money? Uh, Yeah. Even then I tried to have somebody else collect it. And then I had to have my wife account for it. And then I had to write checks. But all the while I had a board of directors. And so as the church went from 35 people to 70 people to 150 people to 500 people to a thousand people to more than a thousand people. Guess what we've done? We've always had the same 
thing in place. The people who collect the money and the people who count the money and the people who account for the money and the people who spend the money. And then there's a group of overseers who make sure that we have a budget and that that there's wise stewardship taking place. Why? Because accountability avoids misunderstanding. I think I said this to you guys last week. Do you want to destroy a ministry? Mishandle the finances. A good man, the Bible says, leaves an inheritance for his children and his children's children. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 13, and the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. Those who handle money wisely, the point that the Bible makes, those who handle money wisely will have some left over to give generously to worthwhile projects. That's the point of the passage. And you know what the scripture says. In Proverbs 27, verse 7, it says, The rich rule over the poor, the borrower becomes the lender's slave. It also says in verses 26 and 27, um, Do not be among those who give pledges, among those who become sureties or guarantees for debts. If you have nothing with which to pay, why should you he take your bed from under you? Here's the point. Excessive debt makes it impossible to give to those in need. And so the Bible writer just basically says this, be wise, be thoughtful, avoid debt. Why? Not simply because of your own well-being. If that were the only reason, that would be a good enough reason. But the Bible's instructions are be wise with your money. Why? Because God is going to give you wonderful opportunities to minister to others. And excessive debt doesn't make that possible. This is why Paul is taking such careful precautions. By the way, does this completely remove the temptation to steal? No. Does it make it more difficult? Yes. And what I'm hoping, just like what happened to me when we were trying to do the right thing, and because we did the right thing, we were able to discover the discrepancy and then confront. Here it becomes part of the point. When there is accountability, the Bible makes it abundantly clear that just like the scriptures say, be sure that your sin will find you out. That's why this kind of accountability becomes so important. So, Paul wants the finances to be in the trust of two or more people. Again, this way we limit the possibility of misrepresentation and scandal. And then giving and procuring. Look at verse 21. Providing honorable things. Not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of the men. In other words, providing honorable things. The King James has honorable as honest. It's, it's a, again, an interesting word. It's the Greek word kala. It's a word that speaks of the outward appearance. In other words, providing honorable things. Here's the idea. So that everything looks right on the outside. Well, is it just appearances that we're interested in? No. 
not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. In other words, so that there's accountability so that everyone in the congregation can go. Is there accountability in what you do? Yeah. Well, don't you trust me? Well, in the you know what Paul's saying, look, I know that God looks at my heart. But I also know that human beings look at each other and they have to look at each other in such a way that it looks like everything is right. Here's the idea. Men look on the externals. God looks at the heart. Is that an excuse not to be accountable? It shouldn't be. Things need to not only seem right, they need to actually be right. They need to be right on the outside. They need to be right on the inside. And by the way, when Paul writes providing honorable things, not only in the sight of the Lord, but in the sight of of men, do you realize that he's quoting Proverbs chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, literally in the Greek Septuagint, word for word. Paul quotes the Greek Septuagint in order to make a point. G. Campbell Morgan writes about this passage, quote, Providing for honest things means making sure that things are done honestly. Paul was anxious that his actions should not only be honest in the sight of the Lord, but they should also be above reproach in the sight of men. And then he writes, quote, it is the business of the Christian community to do its business in such a way that men of the world will have no cause to suspect anything contrary to righteousness in its affairs. And so here's what we do at our church. We do everything as if it's going to be on the front page of the Denver Post. Or that it's going to be posted at some social media website. So that, so that when it gets posted, people can go, how can you explain what you've done? So that we, we have some sort of explanation. That is a God honoring explanation that makes sense. And in verse 22, it says, and we have sent with them our brother whom we have proved, who we've often proved diligent in many things, but now much more diligent because of the great confidence which we have in you. So Paul introduces another unknown brother. And what are the qualifications of this brother? He has proven himself. Look what it says. Read it for yourself. Diligent in many things. The idea is that the person has been tested and proved in the area of zeal, ability, faithfulness. I work with the FBI. At the FBI, I can put a hundred dollar bill on my desk. No one will touch it. No one will take it. I can put a breakfast burrito on my desk and it's gone. G-O-N-E, gone. See, you laugh, but you understand the point. The FBI agent has been trained and is committed that there are certain things that you cannot, you will not, you must not do. And so Paul points out that these people have proven themselves in the area of zeal, in the area of ability, in the area of faithfulness. And so if you're wondering who collects the money, 
and why do they get to collect the money, then you should look carefully at who they are. You should look carefully at what they do. You see, just like you, who do you want to entrust your money to? Don't you want someone who's going to be, has real ability and faithfulness, who will do the task wholeheartedly to the, to the task that the church has entrusted to them? So guess what? This is part of who you are, too. Do you want to go here and give here and serve here? Then guess what? Find stuff to do. Find a place to serve. Find a place where your useful gifts can be used for God's glory and for the gospel's sake. And again, what an interesting and exalted title. He says in verse 23, if anyone inquires about Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker concerning you. Or if our brethren are inquired about, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. Look what it says. Paul calls Titus and these two unnamed servants partner and fellow worker. The word fellow worker is interesting in and of itself. Synergos. Uh, S-Y-N means together. Ergon is the work which means word which means to work or energy. And so it means this is someone who's my fellow worker. We work together in the same task. And what an interesting and exalted title. The glory of Christ. What makes that so? Look what Paul calls them. The glory of Christ. I'm going to suggest to you, it's as if they're deputies of Christ. You know, when you're an officer, when you're a sworn officer, when you're in the military, or you're in law enforcement, you take an oath to uphold the Constitution. And so again, in a real sense, these are servants who've been deputized by Jesus. And remember what the glory of Christ is. The glory of Christ is an expression that means the sum and the substance of all the attributes of God in one. And so here they're called the glory of Christ. And I'm going to suggest to you. It's because they shine. They shine before men. They shine. Have you noticed that the men and women who work in our children's ministry shine the people who collect the offering they shine the people who do the worship they shine why do the ministers and servants and workers shine it's because they reflect the love of God and they reflect the glory of Christ they're a credit to the Lord They're a credit to the church that they represent. And look what else Paul says. They are messengers. You know what that word is. Apostolos. It's used 81 times in the New Testament. Apostolos. It's often translated apostle. But it's also sometimes translated messenger. Or missionary. Or appointed representatives. And so why are they messengers? 
Why are they appointed representatives? Because they've been appointed by Christ and they've been appointed by the church for the work of mutual ministry. You know, part of the point of this passage, if anyone inquires about Titus, I want you to think about what you're just reading. Paul expected people to ask. If anyone asked, who are those guys? Isn't that interesting? He expects for people to ask. So if a person comes to me and says, I want to know about your financial accountability. Thank you for asking. This is how we do it. And you can walk with them and you can watch exactly what they do. Watch as they pick up the tithe. Watch as they count it. Watch as they give it to the business manager. Watch as it goes into the deposit. See how it's spent. Do you think that the lights come on magically all by themselves? Do you think that the children's ministry materials just all of a sudden appear out of the out of the. What's the word I'm looking for? Clear blue sky out of thin air. Yeah. Who is that guy teaching up there in that pulpit? Who are those people? I'm so glad you asked. Because you have every right to know. Paul knows that these people have to have the highest spiritual credentials. They should be people who are blameless, blameless, not sinless, diligent, full of zeal, full of grace, partners in ministry, and then partners with the minister. They're partners in the ministry and they're partners with the minister. And then finally, look what he says, giving and loving in verse 24. Therefore, show to them and before the church is the proof of your love and of our boasting on your behalf. Do you understand what Paul is writing? Allow these partners to partner with you. The church could prove their love in at least two ways. First, by receiving these men. Second, by helping them fulfill their ministry. I love the way Phillips translates this verse. He writes, so do let them. And all the churches see how genuine is your love and justify all the nice things we've said about you. There's an interesting play in, in words in the original language. Endikinmi, endikis, to show forth, to prove and proof. Prove and proof is a noun and a verb. It's the kind of proof that you can touch and taste and smell. He's saying provide proof, something that is substantive. So what, 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 in, what in fact is he saying? Paul is saying, prove your love. What do you mean prove your love? It's the gift. The gift is the proof of the love. The person who gives a little with a smile gives way more than the person who gives a whole lot with a frown. But here becomes part of the point. Therefore, show to them and before the church is the proof of your love. Underline the word show and underline the word proof. What's the proof of love in this particular passage? Oddly enough, the proof isn't, well, I go to worship service. I go to Bible study. 
I pray. Paul's proof of love, it's the gift. How do we prove our love for God? Well, we prove our love for God in the very real way that we act towards one another. If someone said to you, do you love God? How would you answer? You don't have to do it right out loud, but just think about that for just a minute. If a person said to you, do you love the Lord? What would you say to them? How would you answer them? How would you prove your love? Would you point to worship or would you point to prayer or would you point to Bible study as evidence of your great love? In one sense, the proof of love is often contained in our gifts to God. And clearly the most important gift that you can give to God is yourself. And remember, we talked about that last week. We give ourselves to the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the fact and measure of love is often found in what we give to others. So people will bring stuff to the church. What is that? It's my junky furniture. I don't want it anymore. You can give it to some poor homeless person. What is that? You don't understand. That is my softball t-shirt from 1986. Why are you getting rid of it? It's full of holes. I can't even use it as a decent rag. But here, it's a gift for Christ. Really? I want you to think it through. The fact and the measure of love is often found in what we give to others. I want you to think it through. When a man finds a woman who's willing to marry him, or a woman finds a man who's willing to marry her, what do they usually exchange? A pledge. You get engaged. Like my son Anthony. Shh, don't tell him I told you from the pulpit. But Anthony's engaged. Okay. Okay, if that part is over with. Man, I... I'm so glad that he finally found someone who would have him. (laughs) But what do they exchange? They exchange a pledge. They exchange promises. That's what people do who love each other. Love thrives in an atmosphere of giving. And dies in an atmosphere of withholding. And so what greater example of love do we have in this scripture than the gift of God's son? You know the scripture, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It's the greatest gift to the most needy group of wretched sinners. And the divine love was proved by the divine gift. You know, it's easy to say, you know, the Bible says that God is love. And that's true. It's more difficult to say here in his love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. We're not talking about a philosophical or a theological nicety that God is love. We're talking about a real God who enters into time and space and he loves you and he dies for you. You know, our temptation is to simply talk about our love and then never do anything to prove it. Let me just suggest something to you. Don't be content to say, 
Well, I would do something if I could. I want you to change your speech. I want to suggest to you that you say something different. Not I would do something if I could, but be willing to say I will do what I can. Do you see the subtle difference? Let affection be respond to affliction. Let me repeat that. Let affection respond to affliction. Charles Haddon Spurgeon was fond of saying, feel for others in your pocket. I like that, even though the statement is 150 years old. Only by the practical display of it can we prove the actual possession of it. The proof of the possession is love in action. And that's why John writes, how can you say that you love God, but you hate your brother? How can you say that you love God who you can't see when you hate your brother who you do see? In 1 John chapter 3, verse 17, it says, But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him, my little children? Let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. So what are some of the broad principles we can glean from the passage? Well, money should be accounted for. Account for the money. Receipt it and record it. Funds should be counted by one group, in my mind, recorded by another group, spent by another group with accountability. Paul speaks of the high regard of the people he entrusted. Paul speaks of his administrative integrity in verse 20. And then he speaks of his absolute integrity in verse 21 before his master and before all men. And that becomes your key. Because the person that you have to satisfy isn't me. It's the Lord. The Lord knows the truth about you. We're sometimes a little loose with the term the Lord's money. You know the story. Remember the child came up to his mom. It was church. And so. The mother said, okay, Sarah, here are two quarters. One quarter is for you for ice cream after church, and one quarter is for the Lord. And so Sarah's tootling along, and all of a sudden she drops a quarter, and it goes into a grate, and it disappears. And Sarah says, sorry, Jesus, that I lost your money. Isn't that funny? One quarter's for the Lord and one quarter's for her. And the one that goes down the drain, oh, it just happened to be Jesus' quarter. Paul speaks of the Macedonians' grace and growth. Remember, the Macedonians gave not out of an abundance, but out of poverty. And so, again, the other principle, there should be no opportunity for accusation, either by the Lord Or by our fellow human beings. We must not give the occasion for accusation. Through the careless handling of money. I understand that the church's stewardship may seem a little bit higher or different from your own. But let me just be blunt. 
No church should give money to a person or an organization that's not financially sound and doctrinally sound. Need is never a sufficient reason to give. There has to be proof that the money is handled honestly and spent wisely. And so the other one, give yourself. Give generously. Remember, Paul has already written, I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love in verse 8. What's motivating you? So pause, and we're going to come to a conclusion. We're going to have communion in just a a minute. What are the benefits of generosity? God is praised. Needs are met. We are blessed. The Beatles weren't great theologians. But they were right when they said, money can't buy me love. They stole that. From the book of Proverbs. Money can't buy you love. Money can't buy integrity. In Proverbs 28.6. Money can't buy a good reputation. In Proverbs 22.1. And guess what? If I'm unfaithful with your money. Then almost certainly I'll be unfaithful with other things. It's a hard standard, but it's one that we have to voluntarily embrace. The most valuable things in life aren't for sale. You probably already know what money will buy and what it can't buy. It's been said it can buy a bed, but not sleep books, but not brains, food, but not appetite, finery, but not beauty, a house, but not a home, medicine, but not health. Luxuries, but not culture, amusement, but not happiness, a crucifix, but not a savior, a pew, but it can never purchase a place in heaven. Did you guys read this last week about this so-called observant Jew who decided he was an atheist? He sold his place in heaven on eBay. I'm not making it up. He put, he says, I am Putting for sale my place in heaven. I don't know which is crazier. That he did it or that the bidding got up to $99,000. There were 189 bidders. Until mercifully eBay yanked the ad. Saying we can't sell stuff that doesn't really exist. Well thank God for integrity on somebody's part. You can't purchase your place in heaven. No matter how high you bid. The only way that you can purchase a place in heaven is by being reminded who already made the purchase. Jesus Christ, the living Lord, has provided the satisfactory funds in order to ensure a place in heaven for each and every one of you. It's so simple. If you love him and trust him. If you believe that his sacrifice is the satisfying solution to the problem of sin. You can know him and you can love him. And you can be assured that heaven is a real place. And it's prepared for you. We weren't kidding when we sang. That your presence is heaven. 
And the presence doesn't begin when we die. It begins the moment that we place our confidence and trust in the person of Jesus Christ. Have you done that? If you haven't, let me give you an opportunity to do it right now before we have communion. Heavenly Father, I pray for that man or that woman who for reasons that I may not know find themselves in a dark and a distant place. They wonder about life and they wonder about love. They wonder about giving and they wonder about taking. They wonder whether or not they have the resources in order to go to heaven. And they've come to the conclusion that they don't. That their sin is too heavy and their rebellion too great. Lord, I pray that you would remind them that Jesus is willing to take that burden. To take that sin. To take that guilt. To take that shame. That Jesus, the lovely Jesus, the wonderful Jesus, the precious Savior Jesus is willing to forgive them and reconcile them to the Father and provide a place in heaven for them. So, Heavenly Father, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would cause them to, in their own heart, with confidence, to pray a simple prayer. Heavenly Father, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I need a Savior. I know that Jesus is that Savior. I want to experience His love and mercy and grace. Lord, I want to turn from my sin and I want to turn to You. And I want You, Lord, to fill me with Your Holy Spirit and change me from the inside out so I can be that man, that woman that You want me to be. That I can live a life that's honoring to You full of integrity, simplicity, humility, and honor. In Jesus' name, amen.